Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the BC carbon tax here set to go up, up and away here now. It is currently 11 cents a liter. That's how much you pay in the BC carbon tax when you fill up your vehicle. 11 cents per liter. That is set to rise now to 14 cents a liter on April 1st. You're talking 27% increase in the carbon tax in just one hike. It doesn't stop there. Scheduled increases every year after that out to 2030 when the carbon tax will be 37 cents a liter in BC. So wrap your head around that one now from 11 cents a liter to 37 cents a liter for the carbon tax over the next seven years. That's going to hit you right where it hurts. And I've got Zach Spencer standing by to discuss first. Let's have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Chris Dow. I just think it's ridiculous. That's my honest opinion, because right now, a lot of people are struggling to just live. Starting April 1st, BC's carbon tax will increase by $15 per ton, rising each year until it reaches $170 per ton by 2030, mandated by Ottawa. That works out to be about 37 cents a litre in gas taxes. Okay, let's discuss now with Zach Spencer, automotive journalist. He's a car expert. I absolutely recommend his YouTube page to you, Motormouth on YouTube. you got quarter million subscribers on there. Hey, Zach, thanks a lot for coming on this morning. Anytime, Mike. Glad to be here. Okay, so Zach, let's talk about the carbon tax here now. So when you talk to people who are, are driving a gas-powered vehicle, what do you hear about gas prices here and the prospect for this tax going up so dramatically? Well, it's just the beginning of several taxes. We have another tax that's starting on July 1st that nobody's talking about yet, and that's the the clean fuel standard. That's a federal regulation that by 2030 is going to add roughly about 15 cents per liter on top of the carbon tax in B.C., on top of the transit levy, on top of sales tax. We pay a huge portion of our fuel bill in taxes. And the problem is... Governments live in ideology. British Columbians live in reality. And the reality is inflation is runaway. Interest rates are sky high. Mortgage rates are up. Groceries are through the roof. Um, rent is incredibly high. And then you've got to figure out how you're going to plan a short one-week vacation to the Okanagan in the summer, and it just doesn't add up for people. So it's yeah. it's easy to say we're going to increase these carbon taxes to get people to change their habits. But the problem is there's just not enough of the vehicles uh, to do that. They're available in the marketplace today. Okay, speaking of that, let's have a listen to the finance minister here. This carbon tax increase really hit with a wallop in her, her budget this week. So this is Katrina Conroy, BC finance minister, and here she is talking about those electric vehicles. Let's have a listen here. I mean, that's the goal with the uh, electrification BC is to have more people driving electric vehicles. Right, yeah, you get more people in electric vehicles, Zach. You avoid paying that carbon tax, drive down BC's car, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So the problem is, though, like, what are you what are you seeing out there right now in the EV market? Are, they, are these vehicles tough to get? Well, <laughs> put an order in and wait two or three years. There's just nothing available. Anything with a plug 
is is in high demand. Listen, we have had record fuel prices in the last 12 months. Last summer it was up to 250, 260 a liter, right? Big a big portion of that is the tax, which is only going up now and set to go up again on July 1st. The problem is people can't pivot because there's nothing out there for them to buy. And if they do start shopping for a car, you've now got um, vehicles that are much more expensive than conventional gasoline models. And then you've got supply shortages. So you've basically just got to suck it up and put the gas in the car and pay the bill. You know, if they want to do the carbon thing, that's fine. But they should also have a target for the price of fuel. Like, I think anything over, like, $2.25 a liter is absolutely punitive to the working person. So why don't they just say, okay, we're not going to put the carbon tax in this year. We'll see what happens next year with the price of fuel. And then we might add it in. If the price drops down, then, you know what I'm saying? Like, average out the price over several years. Don't pile on with already high prices. What about the incentives and rebates for buying an electric vehicle? I mean, those are still in place in BC, right? You buy one of these vehicles, you get rebates, you get a, it can be a pretty good deal, it, it appears. Well, it's all now, okay, there's two parts to that. There's the federal yeah. rebate, which is $5,000, right? So any okay. vehicle under a certain price will uh, qualify. Uh, the BC one is means tested, which I think is a good idea. The more money you make, the more it's on you, the less it's on the government. Uh, the problem is that ex uh, electric cars are very expensive and yeah. um, you can't get one. So instead of Listen, there is not there are very, very, very few electric cars that you could go out in the next month or two and buy. So there's lots of demand because of high fuel prices. So instead of incentivizing something that is already sold out, why don't we take that money and put it into infrastructure for charging? So the big problem we have is like we're putting the cart way ahead of the horse here in terms of uh, the charging infrastructure. You talk to anybody that doesn't drive a Tesla and they'll tell you that the charging infrastructure is, is uh, wanting. And um, it's, it's really that's what needs to be addressed. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of that infrastructure, like the other thing that comes to mind for me is for people who really can't make an electric vehicle work for them. I mean, we've had these carbon tax in place now for, for many years in our province, and it really has not succeeded in driving down greenhouse gas emission rates. Like if you take a look at the latest available statistics, which is 2020, BC had only reduced greenhouse gas emissions in the province by 1% from the baseline year of 2007. The official goal is 40% by 2030. 40% in the next seven years. We're only at 1%. And I think for a lot of people, like, talk to me a little bit about that. Like, you know, for someone who lives, let's say, in the north or the interior of the province who are thinking, like, wait a minute, how am I going to get a, an electric vehicle working where I live in the deep freeze here in the winter? Like, in your experience, the batteries work work okay in the deep freeze? Well, they can, but they're, you're right. going to reduce range, right? Um, obviously, depends what your case use is. If you're somebody that just lives in Kelowna and drives around Kelowna, electric car would be perfectly fine. But if you're doing long haul driving from Prince George um, down into the Lord, like it's just it's just a lot of work to plan it out and charge vehicles, and then you have the expense of the vehicle. So that's what I'm saying is we we have governments live in ideology. British Columbians yeah. live in reality, and it's it's really uh, hard for working people the other couple two other lines i want to use one sure. is if energy is expensive 
everything is expensive. And we're seeing mm. that with the cost of groceries. So yeah. what they're doing is they're piling on this carbon tax, especially on diesel fuel. And diesel fuel is the lubrication of our economy. Diesel fuel is what gets the seeds in the ground, which gets the tractor through the field, which gets the truck to the warehouse, which gets the truck to the grocery store. That is the lubrication of our economy. And that is making things very expensive. You ask anybody that runs a business, their costs for transportation are through the roof because of diesel. Yeah. So it, I can see on one hand, but there's no alternative for these people. You know, there's no. no electric truck that they can go out and buy today and deliver your groceries. It just doesn't exist. Well, there's the Tesla truck, but there's like a handful of those in the world. So, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so the other line is uh, that I came up with is electric cars are really playthings of the upper middle class. Mike, you know where you live, the people, maybe some retired civil servants, and they've got, oh, look at us, they're smug, and they've got their electric car. It's like, but yeah, but you can afford that. The, yeah. the, the, the person that, so I think what we're going to see here over the next uh, you know, few years as we head towards 2030, driving will be a luxury for people that can afford it. And I don't see massive tr uh, transit infrastructure being developed. We have some, but if you want to get people out of cars, the money should be going towards mass transit and charging infrastructure, not giving people rebates on personal transportation. I think that's just silly. Zach, some great points this morning. Thank you for coming on with your time today. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Mike, and thanks for playing Rush for me. I appreciate that. Oh, I know. You I know you're a, big, you're a big fan, just like me. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Let's talk about home affordability now. And we talk a lot about this on the show, the unaffordable housing market we have here in Metro Vancouver, Victoria, the price of a home out of reach for so many people, especially if you're a non-millionaire especially young people starting out with a family and be dreaming of a home with a backyard for their kids. Will this always remain a dream for people? There, there was a time when a working class young family could afford a home like that. Not anymore in this city, especially when you look at the price of real estate, the rising mortgage interest rates, the stress test that's applied for getting a mortgage. And we got some new numbers in here now on how much income you need in order to afford an average home in Vancouver. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Penelope Graham. Penelope is Director of Content at RateHub.ca. Very pleased to welcome Penelope to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, good morning. Okay, good morning to you. So let's, let's start, first of all, with um, the current pricings of real estate in Vancouver. Prices were, got, were going down, right? That's what I heard. They, weren't they going down a little bit? Mm -hmm, that's right. So, you know, as you were just mentioning, Vancouver has really um, held that infamous title as Canada's priciest housing market for, you know, over a decade at this point. And our recent study really highlights how this continues to be the case, even though real estate in general has downshifted post-pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so we, we do this study on a quarterly basis, and we take a look at how much income one needs to buy a home uh, in the major markets across Canada. And that's based on the average home price in the city, uh, as well as factors such as changing mortgage rates and qualification. Um, and these most recent year-over-year -year findings, because we looked at the January over January, they're really interesting because they capture how, while home prices have dropped considerably, these rising mortgage costs are indeed offsetting that. And Vancouver is certainly no exception. Yeah, and I'm taking a look at the, the 
the numbers that you guys just put out here, Penelope. So let's take a look mm-hmm. at Vancouver. So the price of a home, one point one million. Is that that's the average home price in Vancouver, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So that has in fact fallen uh, just over seventy eight thousand dollars from the same time period last year. Right. Um, right. So the prices, but the price has gone down. But then you compare mm-hmm. that to how much income you require to afford this house, and that's that's gone the other direction. So even though the price has gone down, you still need more money in order more income, right, to afford that right. home. Can you explain that? Yep, that's correct. So it really comes down to today's mortgage climate. So yeah. a prospective buyer uh, today actually needs to earn uh, just over $23,000 more this year compared to last year. Uh, so that income is now just over uh, $212,000. Last year is just over about uh, $189,000 in order to um, qualify for a mortgage to afford the average priced home. And oh. this is due to that run-up in mortgage costs um, as, a re- as a result of the Bank of Canada's hiking cycle. So uh, Central Bank has raised that benchmark cost of borrowing um, by 4.25% since last March. Uh, so that in turn has pulled up all of the variable rates offered by consumer lenders. Uh, and it's also impacted the bond market, which has caused fixed mortgage rates to rise as well. So if you look at the average five-year fixed offering, um, you know, averaged by all the the big five banks, it has increased um, from 2.91% last year to 5.37% this year. Uh, So that's a difference of over uh, 2.5%. So this translates into, you know, borrowers with current variable mortgages are having to shell out more uh, on their mortgage costs each month. Uh, those who are looking to get into a new fixed rate mortgage are looking at, uh, you know, considerably higher rates than they would have last year. Uh, and where this is really hitting everybody is at that stress test stage. Yeah. So the stress test, um, that requires borrowers to prove that they can afford to carry their mortgage at a rate of either 5.25% or their contract rate plus 2%, whichever is higher. But as of last July, uh, when the Bank of Canada implemented, uh, you know, that that whopping full 1% rate hike, there hasn't been a single five-year fixed or variable rate available on the market as low as 3.25%, which is what you would need to have in order to um, do the stress test at 5.25%. So that means every mortgage borrower getting a new mortgage today has to tack on 2%, regardless of whatever rate their bank is giving them. Uh, so that equals a qualifying stress test rate today of 7.37%. And last year they would have been stress tested at that 5.25%. So that really makes a big dent when it comes down to qualification and how much mortgage the lender is, is willing to give you. Uh, and, and that just eats into your affordability. Oh my goodness. Yeah, this is a very, this is not a pretty picture we're painting here because when you sort of add all these numbers up, I mean, it's it's like, who can afford this? I mean, who could actually get into a home like this? I mean, if you need $212,000 in income, I mean, who, who mm-hmm. the heck makes that kind of money? I mean, we're talking like one percenters here. So this is, uh, this is disturbing kind of picture here. What about the fact, Penelope, that the Bank of Canada has now given some pretty clear indications that they're going to put a lid on any any more interest rate hikes, right? So we don't expect another interest rate hike anytime soon, right? That's correct. So in their last rate announcement in January, uh, they signaled very strongly that as long as 
factors like inflation and GDP are playing along, uh, they foresee not having to make any more interest rate hikes uh, for the foreseeable future. So we're expecting, you know, as long as the economic factors um, uh, remain consistent with what they're expecting, uh, it should be holding on rates for the the time being. Um, But that doesn't necessarily translate into borrower relief. Uh, So if you've got a variable rate mortgage, yeah, it's great that your your, uh, rates and your payments are not going to be necessarily increasing in the months to come, uh, but they're not going to be going down either. And then when you look at the fixed mortgage rate market, that's influenced by direction in the bond market. And bond yields are a little bit less predictable. You know, they're not directly mandated by that Bank of Canada rate. Um, but whatever the Bank of Canada is signaling then trickles through the economy, the markets react, et cetera. Uh, and right now, uh, those bond yields are really elevated, um, partly due to uh, the fact that inflation is still really steep in the U.S. Uh, So even though things are looking cheerier in Canada, we're still very, very heavily influenced by monetary policy in the U.S. Um, So the picture, you know, for the time being is rates might stabilize. Uh, Fixed rates are are actually under, um, you know, some upward pressure right now, um, but not likely to see any rate cuts until probably 2024. It really depends on whether those uh, recession predictions come true and, and where everything else trends. It's really discouraging in Vancouver, the numbers we just broke down there. But if you take a look, I'm taking a look at the chart that you guys just issued here, Penelope. Mm-hmm. So the city of Victoria. So mm-hmm. Victoria, the average home price in Victoria in January, 866000 So again, similar to Vancouver, that has gone down. So the price of a home in Victoria has gone down. But you still need more income in order to afford mm-hmm that home because of the mortgage rates that are going up, the stress test that you described. So in Victoria, oh man, you'd need another 25000 bucks in income in order to afford a home. My goodness. That's correct. And and the reason why the numbers shake out that way for Victoria, even though their average home price is slightly lower than Vancouver's, uh, is just because the decline in average home price uh, hasn't been as steep year over year. So there hasn't been as much price relief on, on that end. Uh, and that just translates into, um, you know, the, the income requirements going up. Uh, and in fact, out of the 10 markets that we looked at across the country, there was only one, uh, which is Hamilton, Ontario, uh, where the income Income required actually went down, uh, and that's because their average home price declined by over two hundred thousand dollars. So a bit wow. of an anomaly there. Um, but in in regards to the rest of the country, where you know home price declines have have not been as steep, uh, we're generally seeing the income requirements go up. Penelope, thank you for breaking these numbers down for me today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure. All right, let's talk about the battle over the future of policing in the city of Surrey. Should Surrey continue with its transition to a local municipal police force, or do they put the brakes on the whole thing and keep the RCMP in Surrey instead? Uh, this has been dragging on for months here now. This one in front of the B.C. provincial government. This will be the final call to the province here on which way to go. I had a short conversation just this morning with Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General. I bumped into him, asked him what's going on. He said, we're getting closer to a decision on this. Could be another week or two before. But he also said this is a, a different 
difficult issue for the province. Now, here is the latest on this one now. It was a 5-4 to four vote at Surrey City Council to keep the RCMP. That was the vote. It was very close. 5-4 to four to go back to the RCMP. But what about one of the city councillors here, Councillor Rob Stutt, whose son and daughter work at the RCMP? The union now for the new Surrey Police Force says that's a conflict of interest. They filed a complaint against him. Got Paul Danes standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart. In November, Surrey City Council voted 5-4 to four to keep the RCMP and abandon plans for the new Surrey Police Service. Opposed. Passes. Councillor Rob Stutt, a former Mountie, was among those who voted to keep the RCMP. Now, the Surrey Police Union alleges he was in a conflict of interest. He has two children who currently work at the Surrey RCMP, uh, one as a sworn police officer and one as a civilian secondment from the city of Surrey. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Paul Danes. Paul is a member of Keep the RCMP in Surrey. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, morning, Mike. Um, If I could just start off by correcting the global um, news report there by Catherine Urquhart. It wasn't a vote of five to four to keep the RCMP. It was five to three. So just want to put that out there. Five, Five to three. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Give me your your take here on the the situation with this particular city councillor. So we got Councillor Rob Stutt. I've reached out to him. We're trying to get him on the show. He has not responded. I don't think he's done any media interviews. Was he in a conflict of interest here on this issue? Absolutely not. Uh, this whole thing, um, you know, issue brought up by the police union, in my opinion, and the opinion of our group, it's a last ditch act of desperation and political distraction of the of the best kind uh the union know that the province as you've just said is about to bring down a uh, a decision on on policing as you know because you covered it in the ledge last week during question period uh minister farmer was very very clear um the choice of police services uh, decision of the municipal uh municipality of sorry and his only concern at this time, as you've said, is maintaining public, service, uh, uh, public safety. Um, so to raise this at this stage is, is a distraction from that. Public safety is the only issue outstanding by the province. To suggest that Councillor Rob Stutt has a conflict of interest is, is absolutely ridiculous and without any foundation. How Anybody is it? who knows Rob Stutt, and he's lived in Surrey, I believe, for 47 years. Um, vast bulk of his career was with the RCMP. He's been active in community development groups and so on, uh, as well as the insurance industry. The, the bottom line is nobody who knows Rob in the run-up to, during and after the election could be unaware of his position on keeping the uh, RCMP in Surrey. And I believe that dragging quite unnecessarily robs um, children into this debate is, is, is morally wrong and reprehensible. Oh, okay, and how is just, it? How, hang on a second, though, because let's talk, let's talk the reality of the situation here. His son is an RCMP officer in Surrey. His daughter is working for the force on a secondment uh, from, from the city. And, you know, his public service 
I, I respect for sure. And I'm sure his kids are working very hard, too, at their jobs. But how is that not a conflict of interest on the surface of it? I mean, if you're voting to keep the RCMP in Surrey, are you are you therefore not effectively voting to preserve the jobs of your, your two kids? Well, let me take it one by one. Um, uh, Rob's daughter um, actually doesn't... Um, she works with the RCMP. She's actually a city employee. And in the unlikely event that the SBS ever became... Ju- police of jurisdiction, it's highly probable she would be working for the SBS. So either which way uh, with that young lady. Uh, As far as um, Rob's son is concerned, this is a serving officer in in the um, uh, RCMP. He's not political. He has never involved himself in in this issue, either uh, politically or or on his father's behalf. Uh, The only benefit that he has would be continuing to work with the RCMP. Again, in the unlikely event the SPS ever became police of jurisdiction, Rob's son, along with every other RCMP member, would have the option to move elsewhere within the RCMP. So he has no real interest whatsoever. None. Zero. Oh, okay, okay. So therefore you don't think it, it's a conflict of interest. And and again, like I, I extend the invitation to the councillor here to be on the show to, to talk about this in, in a in a respectful interview. So I just, I put that invitation out again. Let me ask you about the current status of this whole, this whole mess here. This is now in front of the province. Mike Farnworth, the solicitor general, looking at these competing reports that he has received from the city, from the Surrey police service, talking to the RCMP. This is the guy who has to make the call. In the meantime, you know, we're getting these huge, Property tax increases in the city of Surrey, a lot of it being blamed on this policing mess. Let me play a, a, an exchange here for you, Paul, and get your thoughts. This is Liberal uh, liberal MLA Shirley Bond facing off against Farnworth in the legislature this week. Let's have a listen. This is a total mess. And the people that are going to have to pay for this government's incompetence and delays are the people of Surrey. The council made a decision that they want to go back. In order to do that, they have to put in place a proper plan that ensures safe and effective policing. Honourable Speaker, they submitted an initial proposal. It was lacking. What is your analysis, Paul, of this situation right now? Where is this all heading? Well, um, just on Shirley Bond's comments, uh, she's quite right. You know, people are concerned about um, tax increases. However... Um, I believe she's just making a political points at this stage. She, she and the Liberals have been remarkably quiet on this issue until very, very recently. Um, yes, uh, it, my perspective is I would have liked to have seen a decision come down a lot sooner, as our organisation would. We've got over 100,000 supporters in Surrey. We, we wait every day. Uh, however, with all due respect to Minister Farmworth, he does have this responsibility for maintaining public service, uh, public safety, and he, he has to he has to also pay very close attention to um, other communities, the mayors in particular uh, in, in in the Lower Mainland. What's what's going to happen if the SBS becomes a police of jurisdiction and and they're they're poaching vast numbers as they are already uh, of members from from Lower Mainland communities, and of course the RCMP have to answer uh, very clearly and, and assure the minister, yes, we, we've got sufficient members to allocate to police uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, safely. The, Do you? 
Do you, yeah, sorry, if I could just say the yeah. police union should be focusing on putting the very best foot forward to present their case to the minister. They're not. They're going for sensationalist photo op sound bites that are actually meaningless. And putting this submission in, in, in or complaint to the police commissioner, it's laughable. It's like something out of a Monty Python sketch. We don't <laughs> have a conflict of interest, Commissioner, and we won't have one. For, for quite a few weeks yet. In all probability, uh, that individual will only be appointed after a decision comes down from the province. So what on earth let, let towns think they're doing, I, I really don't know. Let me ask you this. The city of Surrey and Surrey residents are shocked recently by a proposed 17.5% property tax increase in the city. I mean, this is a shockingly high tax hike. Do you think if the previous council under previous mayor Doug McCallum, if they had never gone down this road in the first place and we hadn't opened up this whole can of worm on policing and we had had just the, the RCMP just going merrily along, that Surrey would not have been hit with this property tax increase today. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, when we were talking about Shirley Bond's comment, what I really meant to also add was that we as a group put the blame where it lies, on Doug McCallum and his appalling administration over the last four years or so. Uh, this is not the fault of the, uh, uh, of the provincial government. We can whine and moan that they've you know, taken a little bit too long, but you know, that's, another, that's almost another, another issue. Um, and I'd also like to point out, the 100,000 supporters that we have, we are non-partisan. We have supporters who are NDP, uh, BC Greens, BC Liberals, the one common denominator we all have is we want to retain the police force that has policed our community for the last 70 years and keep people like Rob Stutt's son who, in the RCMP and others who, who've been born and brought up here and have a commitment to the community. The SPS actually, believe it or not, brag that their members are comprised of um, recruits or, 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 or people they've hired from 26 agencies across Canada. These guys are advertising in Newfoundland and Labrador for police officers. They're also trying to attract people from the UK. Hardly a local police force. Okay. The blame okay. for this is entirely on a very corrupt, very dishonest mayor, Doug McCallum, and his previous municipal administration <clears throat> okay we're talking about the fight over the future of policing in the city of surrey with my guest paul danes lots of calls john in surrey hi john go ahead yeah hi thanks um i like to actually talk about two stories that i have and uh first one was i had a break in my house i live in surrey and uh i waited like eight hours to get the police officer to show up when he did show up he told me clean up everything it's good to go i've got the file and, it, and it's done and after I started cleaning up, I noticed there was a bunch of blood in my house that wasn't mine. And there's other things that were also that were touched by the other person that had DNA evidence. And so I called the RCP one more time. Forensics showed up and they told me that I had the RCP officer that was kind of like the Barney Fife of the Surrey RCMP. That's the first story. So they have useless people. Second story. Actually, I have three. Second story. Well, was, uh, let's, let's just let's just I'll tell you what, let's just make it one story. OK, so, Paul, he's saying that he, he he's, he's not happy with the service from the RCMP. What do you say to him? Well, 
all I can tell you is I don't know the details of this particular case. I, it sounds highly exaggerated to me, but that's a, a personal opinion. All I can tell you is that uh, in survey after survey, poll after poll, conducted by the uh, the, the police, uh, uh, the RCMP union and the city hall and so on, 70 to 72 percent is the average of people who want to keep the RCMP in Surrey. They want to maintain... Okay the service we've had for over 70 years. So I'm sorry the guy had a bad experience. Let's go to Mike in Surrey. Hi, Mike, go ahead. Gentlemen, firstly, um, when the subject of the SPF came up, we all knew it was really obvious that we were going to have to pay for it. Our taxes were going to go up. So why was there not a referendum? Well, I think there should have been. Paul, do you think there should have been a referendum on this? Yes, I do. We We campaigned as a group. Uh, on two occasions, once uh, the first uh, uh, petition for a referendum, we got 51,000 uh, um, signatures. We presented that to Premier, then Premier Horgan and his government. Uh, they said thank you very much and promptly ignored it. The second one that we were involved in in a support role was the Darlene Bennett um, police uh, 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 referendum yes. uh, administered by Elections BC, and we got 42,000 votes on that. Mike, I just want to tell you, uh, collecting 42,000 signatures and 50,000, that's hard work. We had people on the street, rain, wind, and shine, collecting signatures. That's a real real message about how we feel in Surrey about this issue. I I think a a referendum would have brought a lot more clarity to the issue. Let's go to Elaine in Surrey. Hi, Elaine, go ahead. Hi, Mike. I just wanted to say I agree with your guest. And the time for the referendum and all the analysis should have done should have been done ahead of time. And the fact that the minister ignored it then is is you know it's crazy that he would look at these things now. Secondarily, they should have just funded the positions that were open early on, and we wouldn't have all this major expenses and no. budget overruns. And that's just such a shame because clearly, with the information the minister had. With the referendums and the Darlene Bennett situation, you could take from that that there's community support. There was never any call from community support um, when McCallum was in power. He just ignored it. And you could even look at all the public consultations were always at like Tuesday between 5.30 and 6 when most people are picking up their kids or taking them to sports. There was no ability to, and not that he'd listen anyway, he just rammed everything through. And well, one more a, thing it, about the conflicts of interest, sorry, yeah. of interest. There was an issue with Councillor Negra, and there's also the underpinnings of relationships the mayor may have had with another councillor. didn't seem to matter to the minister at that time to do any sort of ethics investigations. Thank you, you, Elaine, for the call. We had more calls we could not get through. Uh, Paul, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.